So we'll begin our last week uh, in Arthur W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God, um, with a reading from Jeremiah chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories, glories in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we come before you in prayer, as we approach your word, as we even seek to contemplate you in our hearts, We are humbled uh, considering how high above us you are, how good and merciful, how great and mighty. And Father, as we uh, unfold your word together uh, with the help of of Pink, uh, a a saint from uh, church history who is such a blessing to us, uh, we ask that you would inform our faith, that you would Speak to our hearts that you would, by your grace, enable us to understand even what, uh, what little bit of yourself you unfold and reveal to us. We depend upon your help and we ask that we might be enabled to receive uh, these blessings by faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So quickly, I want to, um, I'm just going to read the list, basically the, the list of chapters um, from Pink, but... Just to mention the attributes of God that we have covered so far. Feels like not very long that we've been doing this study, but uh, we've covered quite a bit of ground. Uh, It's a short book. Feels like a short study, but there's a lot uh, that we've talked about. We've uh, talked about the simplicity of God, not one of the chapters in pink, uh, but one of the attributes uh, that's important. We've talked about the solitariness of God. His decrees, the knowledge of God, foreknowledge, love, supremacy, sovereignty, immutability, faithfulness, holiness, goodness, and grace. And the chapters we have not covered and we won't get to in our study are power, patience, mercy, and wrath. And we're not covering those, not because they're less important, but because there's not time in our uh, allotted weeks in our time together. Um, So this is just a a list of attributes that are identified by uh, Pink and others, um, but non-exhaustive. I think if anything, we've we've um, come away with an impression that we are just scratching the surface of of who God is and all that he possesses and all of his his gifts, his works, his attributes. um, Just the very surface of this great truth and the riches of that we look forward to exploring and, and um, seeing in more fullness uh, at the end of the age. Um, but today we are concluding our study with Pink's last chapter on the contemplation of God. Uh, and this is not an attribute, but more uh, kind of a takeaway, a, a bit of a, uh, not summary, but Uh, What things do we come away with uh, from a study, uh, come away from this study with? Uh, And Pink highlights 
draws to our attention three things, three truths, which a study of God's attributes make abundantly clear. First is that God is incomprehensible. So as we've spent the last ten weeks or so, I guess this is the ninth um, lesson, uh, we spent this time considering the attributes of God. We must conclude, along with Pink, and in agreement with Scripture, that God is incomprehensible to our minds. And I'll read, read a section from Pink's chapter. From this most feeble and faulty contemplation of his attributes, he's talking about his book, it should be evident to us all that God is first an incomprehensible being, and lost in wonder at his infinite greatness, we are constrained to adopt the words of Zophar. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is high as heaven, what canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. That's Job eleven seven through 9. And yet, although God is incomprehensible, yet it's clear from Scripture that He desires to be known. He desires to be glorified in His perfection, and He condescends to make, make himself known in part to our lowly and finite minds as he reveals his character, his attributes, and his works in Scripture. And he graciously gives us, fallen creatures, fallen mankind, the ability to receive such a revelation by faith in a mediator. So not only does he possess all of these perfections, all of these perfections are a part of himself, uh, all of these perfections uh, demonstrate our inability to know him fully, yet he desires to be known. He desires to be glorified as he is. He condescends to make himself known. So because the Most High God reveals himself and because he has given the Christian means by which to know him, nothing could be more worthwhile than for a Christian to seek after a greater knowledge of him. Pink here quotes Charles Spurgeon, a sermon on, uh, from Malachi. And Spurgeon says this, The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the doings, and the existence of the great God which he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of, of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can comprehend and grapple with in them we feel a kind of self-contentment and go on our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this, master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle, eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. Truly we see how finite we are 
And as Spurgeon says, it's like we were born yesterday. We don't know anything when it comes to the infinite, to the eternal God and a study of Him. Pink also includes a quote from John Howe, a Puritan, in which Howe states, So far as our apprehensions can correspond to the discovery that he affords us of his several excellencies, we have a present view of his glory. So though it is uh, partial, though it is incomplete and can never be a, a full comprehension of God, yet in what he reveals to himself, we have a present view. Now we view and behold the glory of God. This God who is invisible spirit allows us to see him and how it's in his attributes, his works, and most especially in his son. How is it that we can view this glory? It's with the eyes of faith, which is the only instrument by which we receive any spiritual blessing at all. But here Pink reminds us that although God reveals himself to us, yet our understanding of him will never be complete or comprehensive, even in glory. Which I think especially as we conclude a study on the attributes of God, we have seen the beauties and delight in studying God, in considering his attributes and his divine perfections. And it makes us long for glory. It makes us look forward to heaven. We will see these things more fully, forever, without end. And so Pink here cautions us not to think that even that will give us a perfect view of God. Pink says, as the difference is indeed great between the knowledge of God, which his saints have in this life and that which they shall have in heaven, yet as the former should not be undervalued because it is imperfect. In other words, it's it's just because we cannot know God perfectly is no reason not to seek to know him at all. We should not undervalue that kind of knowledge because it's imperfect. So the latter is not to be magnified above its reality. He says, in their glorified state, Christians will still be finite creatures and therefore never able to fully comprehend the infinite. And I also want to read a quote from Herman Bavink on this topic. Which I neglected to properly mark. Here we go. So this is again on on incomprehensibility of God. Neither in creation nor in recreation, or in glory, does God reveal himself exhaustively. He cannot fully impart himself to creatures. For that to be possible, they themselves would have to be divine. There is therefore no exhaustive knowledge of God. There is no name that makes his essence known to us. There is no concept that fully encompasses him. There is no description that fully defines him. That which lies behind revelation is completely unknowable. And a bit later, he, uh, Bobbing says, and he's uh, compiling here a bunch of quotes from uh, Augustine and from John of Damascus. 
So there's a bunch of quotes in here. But he says, uh, who, is this, uh, who is there whose conception of God truly corresponds to how he is? He is incomprehensible and has to be so. For if you comprehend him, it is not God you comprehend. I think that's a great line. For if you comprehend him, it is not God you comprehend. It's very humbling. If then we finally want to say what we think of him, we struggle with language. For what is thought of God is truer than what is said. And his being is truer than what is thought. If we nevertheless insist on saying something about him, our language is not adequate, but only serves to enable us to say something and to think of a being who surpasses all else. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. What is thought of God is truer than what is said, and his being is truer than what is thought. So that's one of Pink's takeaways, that when we study the attributes of God, we, we see how incomprehensible he is, or I guess we don't see, we fail to see, because he is incomprehensible to our minds. And yet we are drawn to do so. We are compelled and even commanded to do so. Uh, to seek God where he may be found and where he reveals himself uh, in, in his ordinances. The second thing Pink highlights is that God is all-sufficient. God is all-sufficient in and of himself. That's one of the attributes we considered. Uh, but in many ways it summarizes uh, many of his other attributes. Because God is eternal and unchangeable, nothing can be added to him nor taken away. Because he is infinite, he possesses every possible perfection. He is boundless, endless, infinite. Because God is independent, in need of nothing, uh, he is in need of nothing, yet all things are in need of him. So he alone is independent. He alone is the first thing, the, the thing, uh, the eternal, which has no beginning and no end. Pink says, and this is uh, um, repeating something we've seen before and heard before in Pink, but he says this, had he, God, stood in need of anything external, he would not have been independent and therefore he would not have been God. He created all things and that for himself, Colossians 1.16. Yet it was not in order to supply a lack, but that he might communicate life and happiness to angels and men and admit them to the vision of his glory. True, he demands the allegiance and services of his intelligent creatures, yet he derives no benefit from their offices. All the advantage redounds to themselves. So he gains nothing from the service that he commands because he is all-sufficient, he is self-sufficient. Nothing can be added to him. He gains nothing. I think it's the Westminster Confession that describes all of our good works, all of our obedience to God being uh, resulting not in our merit, but in making us unprofitable servants, meaning that we serve God, but we profit him nothing. I want to read uh, Job chapter 22. Verses 2 and 3. 
This is Eliphaz speaking to Job. Can a man be profitable to God, though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? So again, as we've, as we've noted before, Job's friends said many true things about God and about men, though they came to some wrong conclusions. And this is one a truth about God that they identify, that, that we do not profit God. Does he gain from our righteousness? Our righteousness comes from him anyways. What are we adding to him? Any blessing, any wisdom, any... Uh, and I think we can, especially in, in light of a, a study of God's attributes, many of God's communicable attributes that his creatures possess and exercise, uh, they are from him anyways. How can we think for a moment that we profit God something by returning to him what is his and what came from him in the first place? Pink says... God makes use of means and instruments to accomplish his ends, yet not from a deficiency of power, but oftentimes to more strikingly display his power through the feebleness of the instruments. It's as Paul said that Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. We see all the more the power and might of God as he accomplishes all things that he has decreed, which are Um, many of them contingent, yet he accomplishes all things to bring them about. Even through weak instruments, even in light of the fall, fallen creatures, fallen creation that is corrupted, yet does nothing to disrupt or uh, interrupt the purposes of God. None of God's purposes can fail because he has purposed them. So this is uh, the all-sufficiency of God that we cannot help but see. And we have noted throughout the study, many of the chapters, we've, we've talked about uh, the attributes themselves being uh, from God because he is all-sufficient. When we behold the perfection and completeness of God, he lacks nothing. And it, we do well to remember that as we come before him in worship even, uh, all of our obedience to him, um, that we profit him nothing, yet we are giving him what he is due. All right, thirdly, oh, well, quickly, on that, the all-sufficiency point. Pink says, the all-sufficiency of God makes him to be the supreme object which is ever to be sought unto. So if the infinite and perfect God of the universe is all-sufficient, one of the ways we can think about that is that he satisfies himself. And this turns the brain inside out. But God is infinite and boundless, and yet he satisfies himself. He alone satisfies himself. 
So if that's true, that he satisfies all of his own infinite perfections, he is infinite enough to satisfy infinite affections and desires in himself, how much more is he able to satisfy the finite desires of his creatures? So all of our longing that we identify and that we uh, that are uh, informed by Scripture, even our rightly ordered affections, can only be satisfied by the God who satisfies his own infinite perfections. All of these affections that we receive as gifts of God's grace, reordering our hearts, making us alive and, and, and sensitive to him, sensible of him, they all come from God. And in their origin, in himself, they are satisfied by himself. So why would we seek to satisfy our longings anywhere but in him who alone satisfies himself? Continuing on with that quote from Pink. True happiness consists only in the enjoyment of God. His favor is life and his loving kindness is better than life. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. Lamentations three twenty four. His love, his grace, and his glory are the chief objects of the saints' desire and the springs of their highest satisfaction. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. That's Psalm 4, 6, and 7. The third thing that Pink wants us, uh, identifies for us, that comes to the, the fore in a study of God's attributes is God's supreme sovereignty. He is the supreme sovereign of the universe. Over and over, we've seen that God is sovereign in the exercise of his attributes. Not only is his sovereignty an attribute, but he is sovereign in his exercise of all of his attributes. He exercises them in different measure in his creation at various times toward various objects or recipients of his action, his work. And he does so for his own purposes. Scripture declares that God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. We've seen that verse before several times. Perhaps nowhere is this seen more abundantly than we, as we consider God's attributes at work and on display. As God declares, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will, I will harden whom I will harden. These things are in his hands as the Supreme Sovereign alone. What can explain the variety uh, of measure, variety and measure, in his manifold revelations of himself, but his own sovereignty and the good pleasure of his will? And who can question the judgment of the Most High and his right to do as he sees fit? Another quote from Pink here. And this is how he concludes the chapter and the book. A creature considered as such has no rights. That's something that absolutely flies in the face of a modern Western mind, uh, even informed as we are of of, uh, individual individual rights, individual sovereignty, even uh, many of these things which have some truth in them. Yet we have made an idol, this, uh, this idea that we as individuals have rights, um, 
that may be true in relation to one another as creatures, but considering creatures as creatures, Pink says we have no rights. He says we, uh, he, the creature, can demand nothing from his maker, and in whatever manner he may be treated, has no title to complain. Yet when thinking of the absolute dominion of God over all, we ought never to lose sight of his moral perfections. God is just and good and ever does that which is right. Nevertheless, he exercises his sovereignty according to his own imperial and righteous pleasure. He assigns each creature his place as seemeth good in his own sight. He orders the varied circumstances of each according to his own counsel. He molds each vessel according to his own uninfluenced determination. He has mercy on whom he will and whom he will he hardens. Wherever we are, his eye is upon us. Whoever we are, our life and everything is held at his disposal. To the Christian, he is a tender father. To the rebellious sinner, he will yet be a consuming fire. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's 1 Timothy 1, 17. Now, I... I have a few just closing words as we conclude the study, a few closing words of my own to add uh, to Pink. Things that um, I am, I suppose, coming away from this study with and want to encourage you in as well. Now this study, as I've tried to emphasize many times, has been not merely about God's attributes, but about God himself in his being and in his nature. Recall that in our first lesson, we looked at the simplicity of God, the doctrine that God is not composed of parts, but he is simple. He's not composite, not complex. This means that God is his attributes. That's how we put it previously. But it may be more proper to say, especially in light of of a consideration of, of the incomprehensibility of God, it may be more proper to say that God's attributes reveal something about his imperceptible essence. So not properly speaking, God himself, but something about him. To the extent that we apprehend one of God's divine attributes, we behold something of God himself. Most Reformed theologians agree that God is so incomprehensible, so inexpressible, that so far from properly describing what God is in his essence, our highest and purest conceptions can only describe what he is not. Again, because we are, we are creatures, thinking creaturely thoughts that are entirely unfit uh, to approach and describe, much less define or in any kind of uh, comprehensive way uh, describe the Almighty, who is infinite and incomprehensible. So whether we consider the attributes in Scripture, in creation, or in the secret places in your own heart and mind, I want to encourage you to remember that it's not merely an instrument in a divine toolbox that God uses or sets aside, but we are considering the unknowable, the very nature and essence of God that is unchangeably and eternally united in his being. All of God's attributes 
are present in him at all times. There is never a time when God's love is separated from his wrath. There is never a time God's mercy is separated from his judgment. All are present in him because they are part of himself. And all are fully and completely satisfied at all times in himself. So even in God's forbearance, which he describes many times, the delay, at least in time, to our eyes, to our mind, to our senses, the delay in exercising judgment and wrath, that does not mean it is unsatisfied. It is satisfied at all times. For he has made provision for it. And on this point, I want to read from the Westminster Larger Catechism on the third commandment. And the larger catechism is so um, beautifully written and, and brings much to ponder. Uh, so this is on the third commandment, which is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And remember, there was, uh, I know that there's a quote that I read. I can't remember who said it exactly, but... Um, that the name is, is the summation of his attributes. It's all of his attributes together are his name. So uh, question 112 says, what is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is, whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing. By an holy profession, an answerable conversation. Conversation meaning our manner of life, our, our daily life and conduct. To the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. So remember, as we uh, consider God's attributes, and as we see it more and more in Scripture, remember to... Consider his attributes in a reverent manner. I think I'll leave off question 113. What are the sins forbidden? But that I would commend to you uh, as well. Just briefly, it prohibits curious or unprofitable questions or the maintaining of false doctrines. This is all because it is God's name and attributes. Uh, it's God himself that is revealed in, his, uh, in Scripture. And so a proper and reverent use of his name is to be humble and receive what he has revealed. Uh, not seeking uh, in a, an irreverent way to know that which he has not revealed. But also to accept and believe what he has revealed as true doctrine not contradicting it with false doctrine. And I also want to encourage you to consider the, I, I would call it the Trinitarian application of a study of, of God's attributes. Remember that all of God's attributes are present in all three persons of the Trinity. And a primary reason we have confidence in the doctrine of the Trinity is that scripture ascribes divine attributes, attributes which can only apply to God, 
Scripture applies not only to the Father, but also to the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that was one of the things that led uh, the church fathers to, to rightly conclude that Scripture reveals a Trinitarian God, a God in three persons. The Son has divine attributes ascribed to Him. The Holy Spirit has divine attributes ascribed to Him. And so this demonstrates that because God is one, because He is simple, He is not complex, because there is only one God, all that we can conclude by faith is the mystery of a Trinitarian God. One God in three persons. And as the Nicene Creed affirms, Christ is begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. What are the attributes but the being and substance of the Godhead? So do not become a practical denier of the Trinity by forgetting to ascribe the attributes to each of the three persons of the Godhead. And last, I'm borrowing um, from Thomas Watson, which the men are studying in the men's breakfast, which um, has been really a rich uh, study already. We've had three uh, three studies now in this book, uh, and I commend it to you all. It's been um, excellent. But Watson, one of his applications of a consideration of God's existence and his being is that if God is infinite in his glorious essence, Learn to admire where you cannot fathom. I'm going to read this. It's, it's slightly long, but I think this is a fitting exhortation and a fitting way to conclude our study. And we'll wrap up with this. Canst thou by searching find out God? It's quoting Job 11.7. Here we see some beams of his glory. We see him in the glass of creation. We see him in his picture. His image shines in the saints. But who can search out all his essential glory? What angel can measure these pyramids? Canst thou by searching find out God? He is infinite. We can no more search out his infinite perfections than a man upon the top of the highest mountain can reach the firmament or take a star in his hand. Oh, have God admiring thoughts, a door where you cannot fathom. There are many mysteries in nature which we cannot fathom. Why the sea should be higher than the earth, yet not drown it. Why the Nile should overflow in summer when, by the course of nature, the waters are lowest. How the bones grow in the womb. If these things pose us, how how may the infinite mystery of the deity transcend our most raised intellectuals? Ask the geometrician, if he can, with a pair of compasses, Measure the breadth of the earth. So unable are we to measure the infinite perfections of God. In heaven we shall see God clearly, but not fully, for he is infinite. He will communicate himself to us according to the bigness of our vessel, but not the immenseness of his nature. Adore then where you cannot fathom. And we'll leave it at that. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, you are immeasurable, you are infinite. As we have said so far, uh, so many times, you are far above us, high above us. And doubly so as we are fallen creatures, 
fallen with Adam into his sin and corruption. Though you made all things in your creation good, reflecting the goodness of your character and your nature, yet it has fallen by our imperfections, by our rebellion. And all creation stands condemned because of us. And yet you have made provision, you have made a way that creation might be redeemed. And as we study our own lackings, our own imperfections, our own weakness, how can we conclude that we have anything to do with it? How can we conclude that we have anything to offer that would add any measure to you or that would even satisfy one small part of your requirements? For you require perfection and we are far from perfect. And yet, God, you have given us your son who is perfect. Who, because he is God, can satisfy all of your requirements and all of your attributes, all of your nature. What a mystery is this, and yet it is proclaimed on every page of Scripture. Lord, help us to receive.